0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books, we are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here, let's get started.
1: Hi, this is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Tess Gerritsen. She is an international best-selling author and filmmaker. She studied anthropology at Stanford University and received her MD at University of California, San Francisco. Her series of novels about homicide detective Jane Rizzoli and medical examiner Mara Isles inspired the television series, Rizzoli and Iles. Tess joins us to talk about Listen to Me, the latest novel in the Rizzoli and Iles series. Tess, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the first question that I have is what is your definition of feminism?
2: Uh, that you know, that's a hard question for you to start off with. I think it's just that um women have choices. They can do what they want with their lives and nobody has to tell nobody can tell them what to do. That I, that to me is being a feminist.
1: Yes. And what is listen to me about
2: It's about mothers and daughters. Um I as I get older, um I find that, I, that women seem to lose their voices somehow when they become 50 years old. We don't lose our voices, actually. We stop being heard. Mm. And I wanted to write a book about Jane's mother, who is now in that age group. She's, uh, her husband has left her. She's um, on the verge of a divorce. She's living by herself, trying to find a new life. And she's also dealing with the fact she has become invisible in many ways. So when she sees something on her suburban street that raises her suspicions and tries to tell everybody that something is wrong she's not listened to, even by her own daughter, the homicide detective. So it's just more of a story about the struggles that we go through as we get older in getting people to pay attention.
1: And the poignancy of being heard um, means that there is action behind it. It's not so much just, oh yeah, okay, well, you know, you're speaking, but to actually It's not just being listened to, but it's being heard and it's taking action behind it. And that's what makes the title of this book so poignant.
2: Yeah, it does. And, you know, I I think back to the fact that I probably didn't listen to my mother as I should have when she was still alive. And I wish I could go back and redo it again. But um, uh, now Jane gets a chance. She gets to find out that her mom has valid points, that actually her mother will provide the one sort of clue to help Jane with her own case.
1: Yes. And Jane's mother, uh, Angela, is, she's such a, a lovely character, you know, very, um, she's a powerful person and, you know, no holds bar. So um, it's, she's, she's fascinating to read throughout this, the book.
2: Well, she finds, I think um, Angela in a way finds a lot about herself that she mm-hmm. did she finds out that she's more courageous than she imagined mm-hmm. that in the heat of things, uh, she's the one who will dive in to, to save a neighbor. Um, and she's also the one who notices things that everybody else ignores. And she's the one who, when it looks like she just might not survive this book is, is ready to to fight back. And it finally appreciates the fact that, you know, she has a wonderful intelligent daughter who will see justice is done. For.
1: There was something that I noticed with the, Story is that a number of victims are women and survivors are women. Was there something that you wanted to say with women being victims and survivors, or is was that not intentional?
2: I as a reader, as a consumer of thrillers, find that when the victims are women, I'm more interested. <laughs> Mm-hmm. in the stories. I think, um, and this is this is a conclusion I came to long ago when I was looking at children's scary books. Mm-hmm. When children read a scary book, they don't really care if the victims are adults. They really care if the victims are children. So it's as if we really identify with the victims more than the hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true for men, but I think it's true for those of us who feel vulnerable in society, such as women and children.
1: Yes, it's a it's a fine line to cross because so many women can be victims, but to give them a sense of urgency like a like a they don't have like a cold case like they there's a solution to even why um what happened to them happened. So it's it's not anything open-ended. It provides some sort of resolution.
2: Mm-hmm. And and I as as a woman also, I mean, I feel vulnerable and I think that most women and children do. And I remember my husband was paying was telling me that as we're walking down the street, I'm always looking around. Mm-hmm. You know, you're acting like a prey animal. And I said, Well, maybe that's what we are.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. you're women, you know, people in particular are so vulnerable um when out in the world because you just you never know. So you know, it's not a sense of paranoia. It would be nice to just kind of walk around and hearing the birds chirping, but yeah. something's kind of lurking behind that.
2: Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, circumstantial awareness. And that's yes. what we teach ourselves. And certainly it's what we teach our daughters. Ah. Yes. So I think we, we just, you know, always are on the alert. And, and that was something that my, my husband commented on. He said, he says, men don't really have that anxiety.
1: And it, not just with the title being listen to me, but listen to yourself, listen to your gut, listen to your instincts that like, okay, something's not right here. And then you realize, yes, I was, I was right all along.
2: Yeah. And I, I don't know if we have a more finely tuned sense of that. Um, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like that's what we have dogs for because dogs have this finely tuned sense. And, and that's why I always feel safer around a dog, but yes. Um, it's um, I it's it's a power structure. I mean, those who just cannot fight back as as well um, are the ones that really have to pay attention.
1: Yes. And what characteristics did you want to give Jane and Mara as women in power and position?
2: Well, you know, all of that 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 came through in these thirteen books. Now, it was never a conscious decision. I think mm-hmm. I just wanted them to be who they were. Mm-hmm. Maura is very much like me. I, I mean, I'll say that right now. Everything she thinks is probably something I've thought, of, except for the Catholic priest part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's um, she's logical. She's she's fairly um, self contained, uh, and she's not uh, she's not comfortable around people, mm-hmm. and that is me as well. And Jane Rizzoli, I would say, is just the opposite. So whatever I am, Jane is the opposite. And the, I've I've met both types of women in in you know my lifetime. I went through medical training. And I can tell you, there are some women who are born to be surgeons, born to be gung-ho and walk into that operating room. And there are some women who um, really would prefer to deal with dead bodies in the autopsy room.
1: That, yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. And if anyone has ever seen the show, you see that it's truly opposites attract. And it's such a beautiful friendship between the two of them because they can meet each other despite you know their individual personalities.
2: Yeah, they wouldn't be natural friends. I think that their professions have brought them together. I think if they were to meet on a social level, you, they wouldn't necessarily be, be going home together to have coffee. But because they have been thrown together through work, they have, they have this trust that's grown between them and a sense of, of respect. I think that's what I most wanted to have in the stories. They, these women are different, but they have this mutual respect.
1: And they understand their responsibility to their work, but it doesn't overwhelm them. It's more of a, a power, a, a place of urgency and wanting to get their work done for the betterment of their, their city, um, their responsibility to the work that they get to do.
2: Yeah, the job. And in a way, in a sense, the job is what allows me to focus on these pretty gruesome situations uh, yes. these, are, these are terrible death scenes and autopsies are never never pleasant but because they have a job to do it gives you that distance to be allow you to consider what's really happening I mean I found that true as uh, working as a doctor and I was once in an operating room where somebody was bleeding to death on the table mm-hmm. and it's a really it's a it's a terrible situation where you know there's just arterial blood spurting out and the doctors don't have time to be horrified they right. just well, they're, they're there to do the plumbing And that's what they do. And I think that's how I'm able to approach some of these really um,
1: terrible situations in the books. They're there to do the plumbing. Right. And what was your work as a physician as well as an anthropology student? And how does your work help craft this series?
2: Well, I was an anthropology undergraduate, and then I went to medical school. I started off doing the thing that I i loved. I still love anthropology and archaeology. Uh, and medical school became more of the profession as opposed to the hobby. Um, but I've used everything. I mean, really, your whole life is what you use when you write a book. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a teacher or an airline mechanic, you're going to use that um, in, in your stories, so when I use medicine, a lot of it is just simply trying to get things accurate or trying to convey how doctors approach a particular problem, how they see a sick patient and all the checklists that goes through their heads. Um, and and that's, that's just a matter of medical process, you know, how we think. The anthropology, strangely enough, I think has come in actually more useful yeah. in the writing of books because it's all about, I was in cultural anthropology, and a lot of it is about understanding people and differences between groups, how, uh, you know, group think and how you would work, act as a, as a cop as opposed to how you would act as a medical professional. And I think that understanding came all came in a lot and came in very handy in writing stories. Certainly it came in handy when I had to do something with a, a completely foreign tribe to me in one of my books, which was Gravity. And the foreign tribe were with people who work at NASA. I mean, I, I found them almost a different culture and that it helped me kind of integrate into their their heads
1: as well. So in anthropology, it seems it's not necessarily what you work directly in at one point, but it, it has been helpful to you as you do your work as a writer. And then also with uh, being a physician, being able to craft so much of uh, Mara's character. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what you've learned, and I think a lot of what we learn in life, comes back to us in some sort of way to propel us to something new.
2: Well, I think it really, it it helps us understand character. I, it Really, I, I think that medicine. I've, I've seen people under stress, and you see that people under stress behave in completely different ways than you would expect. They do weird things, um, or they do things that you can't comprehend, but you have seen it, so you know this. This is the human condition. So that's that's I think what living a life. And and when young people ask me what should I study if I want to be a writer, I say to study your own life. Remember what it was like to fall in love. Remember what it was like to you know to be a new parent or something because those are all experiences that you can put to paper with some sense of authenticity.
3: Yes,
1: and what was your experience adapting this series for television?
2: Well, I didn't really have a role in the adaptation um, for television. That's, that, was a, that was a responsibility of the showrunner, um, Janet Tamaro, who helped uh, create the television show. This is kind of standard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when a novelist sells TV rights, Um, the TV writers take over and they make changes. And I think the biggest change was that my two very ordinary looking women on the page turned into two really gorgeous women on the screen. Suddenly, Maura Isles is much more glamorous and Jane Rizzoli is, um, you know, beautiful. The personality of Jane has not changed. I mean, they they did uh, preserve that. Uh, But Maura, I think, went from a kind of a, a, a creepy type of goth character in the books to... Someone who was much sunnier and happier on television.
1: Yes, it, she's very you know well put together. I think provides some sort of uh, illusion of what we think a medical examiner is, but she's very much on point with her work, and she shows up as a professional. Yes, she
2: does. Um, but to be honest, I um, most female forensic pathologists I've met show up for work in jeans and
1: tennis shoes. Yes.
2: (laughs) You know, that's, um, it's not like uh, they don't show up on these four inch high heels. I certainly wouldn't.
1: Yes. And, you know, little pencil skirts or anything like that, where, uh, you know, a mishap is bound to happen. Uh, You don't want to ruin that expensive skirt, do you? (laughs) Right. So as we conclude this conversation, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy Listen to Me from and what organization would you like to amplify?
2: Well, if you have a local independent bookstore, that would be fantastic if you can go in and find it in your local store. If you don't know, there is there are independent bookstore sites online which you can, you can identify where your local bookstore is. And um, if not, it, it is available online at pretty much all online booksellers.
1: And is there an organization you would like to amplify, something that's important to you? Um,
2: well, I'm, I've been thinking a lot as I get older of anything to do with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. I hope people will think about um, the fact that we have, I don't know, 5 million people now um, with Alzheimer's. And as we all get older, it just feels like we're moving into that age group where it could be a problem. Yes.
1: Tess Gerritsen, thank you for joining us to talk about Listen to Me.
2: Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad my internet held <laughs> out. Yes, <laughs> yes. <I'm not. laughs>
4: Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am truly excited to be talking with Sarah Thungum matthews today about her debut novel, All This Could Be Different. Sarah grew up between Oman and India, immigrating to the United States at 17. She is a recipient of a Best American Short Stories 2020 Award and fellowships from the Asian American Writers' Workshop and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Thank you for spending some time
3: with us here today. Oh my God, Mike, it is a true pleasure. Thank you for having me.
4: Yeah. So oh, for a debut novel, this is truly a force. The the prose is incisive, eloquent, vulnerable, and just brilliantly realistic. I mm-hmm. knew before I even finished the first page that I was going to love all this could be different. I like put a little post-it note inside the like first page and was like, this book is gonna be so goddamn good. But I didn't think it was gonna touch me the way that it it did. Could you tell us a little bit about your book and how it came about
3: yeah of course um in the shortest possible summary i would say that all this could be different is the story of a young indian american woman who moves to milwaukee wisconsin right after college and reckons with her first job her first love and her first real friends it's a story of that really heady and electrifying time that is becoming an adult, the sort of post post-education years where you're trying to find a place in the, in the workforce and become stable, but also trying to find yourself and figure out what it is you believe and what it is you should work for and live for. And that's really what it is. You know, I think that a lot of Uh, The appeal of this novel, part of what makes it fun to read is that um, I really structured a lot of it as this will-they-won't-they love story between Sneha, the protagonist, who is like a prickly, sensitive, aloof, you know, junior cog in corporate America. She's working as a consultant and Marina, this beguiling, magnetic ballet dancer that Sneha meets when, you know, they both keep running into each other in Milwaukee both in real life and on the newfangled at the time, because it's 2013 invention of dating apps. So there is this will they, won't they, um, you know, device and intrigue, um, between these two, um, you know, these two very different queer women. And as the novel progresses, there's this new sort of ticking clock that gets introduced in addition to the love story, which is money. Um, Sneha, you know, really thinks that she has made us like the start of a stable life for herself with her, you know, consulting job, and then things start to go off the rails, jobs start to become a little dicey, rents demand to get paid, there is this challenging dynamic with Sneha's property manager. And so I really wanted to set out to write a novel, you know, as an ordinary person for ordinary people, for workers like myself, where these are things that also, in addition to who we love, like shape our lives.
4: Yeah. Uh, security um, is one of the, one of the big the- themes that runs through the book security um, rebellion, community change. But there are, there are places where Saya is in these conversations or or witnessing these conversations Um, with friends who are talking about like Marxism and kind of, Mm uh, she says, um, assigning that, assigning her a place on their political, uh, grid, they don't really see her and she doesn't really want them to see her. She's not like quite Mm -hmm. comfortable yet with that, but she talks a little bit about like what, you know, what, what place does the rebellion have when like the highest pursuit is simply security. Mm-hmm. you know, rest enough and space enough to breathe that not every day feels like a battleground.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The novel to me is or should be a site of pleasure. I don't want people to feel like they are being lectured when um, when they read this novel. And I personally never want to read novels that are didactic, that presume that there is sort of only one answer And they, you know, and they or the author is sort of delivering it to me. Um, A lot of the ideas of this novel, because I like reading novels that are fun and juicy, but also smart and moving. And I tried my very best to write one. A lot of the ideas are present within dialogue, you know, and they are present within disagreements that these young people are having with each other about how the world should work um Tom one of Sneha's close friends who is a Milwaukee or Wisconsin native he's a white man his parents are doctors I really love Tom I you know um and I think Sneha does too and he is especially because he doesn't really like his job the job that they both work Sneha observes that he's quote turning into some species of shaggy radical yeah and I think that she feels a little bit threatened and judged by it, but also a degree of resentment because what she feels towards him is oh, it's really nice that you get to play Mao, you know, with your two doctor parents. Some of us don't have that and didn't have that and are trying to make a middle class life for ourselves and a com- comfortable life for ourselves because it's what we haven't had. And I, just wanted readers to kind of observe the conflicts between um these two people, because the reality is what what any of us believe politically or are, are primed to believe politically has everything to do with our specific histories
4: yeah, and you do a great job of of showing all the different dynamics I mean the, your twenties are such a period of uh, change and awakening and growth, and we're all sort of finding our way through the world and and figuring out who we want to be not even just for ourselves but like in the world and you show a lot of the different nuances and dynamics around these sort of philosophical but really meaningful conversations and uh and i appreciated you know that sneha she her parents this was sort of one of the points in that conversation where her parents own a little bit of property and they are Mm -hmm. sort of saying well all landlords are evil and she's Mm -hmm. you know She's like, well, that, you know, that, that does not, that's not my, that's not my reality, even while she's having this situation with her property manager.
3: Totally. And I mean, I think that one of the things I wanted to show is the fact that people don't fit very neatly into bo- the the boxes of the discourse sometimes, you know, so um, a little bit of context, I would I would say that Sneha's family, during the time of the novel, they're like lower middle class. Um, and her family, meaning her parents who are situated in India, have, because of an episode of criminalization and getting deported back when they were in the US, um, have really lost all of their income and are really barely scraping by and occasionally dependent on their immigrant daughter sneha to send them money but what they do have is like a little like an inherited piece of property in a nearby city and because you know like they're in the situation they are they they rent it out and then one thing that happens in the novel is like they lose their tenant and can't find a tenant sort of a it's a minor point So, yeah, I think that I think that her reaction is defensiveness. And one of the things that she says in that conversation is that she's sort of willing to or to herself is she's willing to concede that Tom might be right in some ways, but that she wants a certain kind of fairness for people who, you know, are mostly trying to just work within the system, which is Mm -hmm. racial capitalism, and don't sort of seek, like they're not seeking out great wealth, they're not seeking, you know, to enrich themselves through like any kind of like theft, but they're just sort of muddling along. And over the course of the book, you see Sneha's political education in many ways, and you like you see her experience, you know, some of the real the real hardship and precarity of what it means to be at the mercy of capital, at the mercy of a callous landlord or property manager or what have you.
4: Yeah, there is a, there is a lot um, about the sort of uh, precarity around that and around her situation and her fears of also being deported and her reliance on, on these systems that are sort of, they're merciless, you know, there's no leeway for her there's no grace for her and she just you know she it's it's almost like those of us who who weren't born with a tremendous amount of privilege just want to be able to be comfortable and and can have a little bit of resentment i think around at least i'm speaking for myself here even not not even for sneha but like around um folks who are having these philosophical conversations and don't really see don't really see that sometimes you just need to be able to feel like the next day is not going to be a struggle.
3: Yeah. There's, there's a conversation between Sneha and Tig, her other best friend besides Tom. Um, And Tig is proposing this sort of somewhat utopian vision. And Sneha is mostly sneering a little bit on the inside, but She's also intrigued, um, but she also, one of the things that she wants to just say, um, partly because she's navigating a very difficult situation where her company has stopped paying her and she doesn't know how to talk about this to anybody. She does not talk about this wage theft, which is one of the most common and undiscussed, like I would argue, white collar crimes in the US and so one of the things she says to us the reader in the book is how is anyone supposed to dream loftily about the future when the present grinds them down like glass and i um you know i have worked as a community organizer and something that i've seen again and again is there are obviously exceptions to this but often people who are living lives of struggle and marginalization are not necessarily like dreaming of radical futures or futures outside the system, they're dreaming of safety within it, and I think that that's very human. And I think it's something that I wanted to depict, but also complicate.
4: Yeah, but you you and um others have talked about how this is a coming of age novel, like of a type. You know, it it um even mentions uh, the original buildings Roman will. Wilhelm Meister's apprenticeship, and Snail's inner life parallels the world outside of her, but it feels like a real meditation on the drive for bourgeois security, you know, mm-hmm. as packaged and sold. It, she says, "A uh, soft and warm as a cashmere sweater," mm. and all the ways that dream fails us, even as we still want it, and as we've been conditioned to want it. And the, I
3: love that. I love that framing.
4: Yeah, and the pivot or the the moment of growth seems to be an allowance that there is the possibility of another way. You know. Uh, yeah. The TIG stream isn't just a utopian vision and that vulnerability, she just like, it. she sort of comes to this place where she like figures out that vulnerability builds strength and interdependence is, mm-hmm. is the key to that survival.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I loved hearing you say that. That is so much of what I hope, you know, readers um, get out of the book or the meaning or part of the meaning I hope they make from the book. I think that, as I said, you know, a novel is not a polemic. It's not a manifesto. Um, and mostly I just want to deliver a world to readers that they care about and characters that they believe in and can really root for in, in a way that also like exercises a muscle, a certain kind of muscle of like criticality and compassion and empathy, um, that all of us, you know, should continually work, um, in order to like be alive at all. But, um, I think to the extent that the novel has any kind of message, it is, I think by the end of it, it really gestures towards this idea that the world as it is, is a fiction. It is something that is made, you know, it's not this static thing handed down by God. The world as it is, is made by other people. And by that logic, it can be remade. The coming of age novel is essentially a conservative, like a conservative narrative mode it historically it engaged with this idea that there's this liminal stage or there could be this liminal stage between childhood and adulthood where you can have this reprieve from doing your work as a responsible adult to reproduce society as it is there's a spirit of freedom and rebellion and you're allowed it and then of your own volition which is what happens in the sort of you know original um Big Daddy Buildings Roman um, by Goethe that I mentioned in the novel. At the end of it, you choose the traditional path but of your own free will. And that is how society continues. And I think this novel engages with re like reality. It's not a utopian novel. I don't think it's like very earnest, you know, about um like various things. I think it tries to engage with people as they are and the world as it is. But I think that it is also interested in saying, "What if coming of age looked, or allowed for, rather than after the like latitude of youth, you take your place in, you know, you take your like slot in the rigid world. You push on you and other people push on the world itself to reshape and accommodate you."
4: I love that. You know, and I just wanted to say one. One last thing about this brilliant novel, which is that the sex scenes in it are exquisite and erotic and raw. And you can feel the desire driving Sneha. Contrast it, like actually contrasted with her intrusive thoughts of a dog licking her shin when uh, her college boyfriend was like snuck down to go, go down on her. Um, it was fantastic. There's such a power in succumbing to desire. And it was this when she was involved in these erotic scenes with Marina, she was just taking all this power. And mm-hmm. it was extremely sexy.
2: <laughs> they were yeah. they
4: were um just really, really beautiful sex scenes. There was so much um interplay and consent and discussion around there and like and showcasing that like that can be a its own form of like dirty talk that you know is
3: uh really titillating yeah well thank you so much for saying that you know I felt a couple of different ways about the sex scenes I think one of the things I really wanted to do was write against shame and I think if you grow up in certain cultural contexts including the one that I grew up in you are a sponge saturated with shame when it comes to so many things, including the body, including sex, like let of any kind, let alone sex that is framed as like deviant or unnatural, which is say in this case, queer sex. And so I really wanted to push against shame. I wanted to write honestly. And I think that there's this complicated line that I was trying to walk where I was like, what is the line between what's literary and what's pornography the writer Garth Greenwell has been an interesting touchstone for me. Um, you know, I think that he writes sex very well, and he writes queer sex very well, and in ways that are absolutely high art, without doing any cutting to darkness, you know, or any yielding to embarrassment. And so, I wanted to do my own version of that. I feel like we have seen a lot of contemporary literary novels that have received a lot of praise rightfully so, for bold, you know, like evocative sex scenes. But they have tended, I've noticed, to be sex scenes where you often have a thin white woman being very submissive, you know, and just sort of yielding to a desire, like to this desire to be obliterated. And that's a particular kind of story. But I wanted to show in my novel the other side of this eager office drone, you know, this sort of like kind of aloof young brown immigrant. I wanted to show a young woman who could be toppy and powerful, you know, who kind of thinks of this time when her clothes fall off as this these brief bursts of being fully herself and living fully in her desire. And I think that there can be something really electric about that um, and about seeing the kind of dense data and exchange that happens between two people when their clothes come off and they're forced to be naked around each other with the fact of what their desires actually are.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing this book to life, for for sharing this with us. It is, like I said, I've really, really loved it. I knew I was going to love it right away. and I was not disappointed in a single passage in it thank you so much
3: the world to hear thank you so much where can folks find you online if they're looking for you yeah so um you know please please come and say hi online i'm on instagram and twitter at smathew so it's s-m-a-t-h-e-w-s-s um is also the name of my website and i have a newsletter which you can find on my website
4: Wonderful. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and we have been talking about all this could be different, amazing, beautiful, wonderful debut novel. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Thank you so much for joining us, folks.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well red woman is a day creature creature